You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volts, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volts. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today my guest is Aaron Holmes, the Executive Director of the Vukuri Property Owners, Residents, and Associates, aka the VC Pora. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Sure. Well, I am the very new executive director of VC Pora. I've only been here for about two and a half months. I just replaced the longtime director, Ms. Meg Lousteau, when she took a job with the National Trust for Historic Preservation. She was the first executive director here at VC Pora. We actually only have a staff of two. It's myself and our assistant director, Jack Greenwood. And in my position, I serve as the leader of the oldest preservation advocacy organization in the state. We just made 80 years old. VC Pora's mission is to preserve the Vieux Carré as a national treasure, to maintain its quaint and distinctive character, and to achieve in that historic living neighborhood a quality of life which can be enjoyed by residents, fellow citizens, businesses, and visitors. A little bit about myself, I am not a native New Orleanian. I'm actually from Baton Rouge, where I earned a design degree from LSU before relocating to New Orleans, and I returned to go for a master's degree at UNO. And since then, I have worked for both PRC and VC Fora, in addition to uh, several other odd jobs. And now this is my second term here. So you, you mentioned your background is in interior design. How did you get from that to preservation to what, you, what you're doing now? Well, I moved here from Baton Rouge in 2006. And like most people, New Orleans really creates preservationists. My my undergraduate studies in interior design developed a strong appreciation for creative expression in the built environment, but I mostly focused on objects that we choose to fill our interior surroundings. I was particularly interested in furniture design, and I have worked as both a designer and a fabricator at several intervals in my life, and I still like to play around with recycled materials in my free time. But though I only grew up an hour and a half away, I spent a lot of time here on weekends with family, and I knew I wanted to move here after graduation. I was planning on relocating a year before, but Katrina and the levee failures postponed those plans. Once I did get here, my priorities began to change professionally. Though I was working remotely on some small design projects and traveling a little bit, I mostly survived off of bartending and waiting tables. My first job in the French Quarter was bartending here. Uh, Living here truly allowed me to explore the city and it was becoming hard to pay attention to the idea of developing interiors when the actual structures were in such desperate need. I saw a lot of homeowners roll up their sleeves and slowly and lovingly rebuild their homes and I also saw the city bulldoze just as many. Later it was more of watching every historic detail and embellishment being stripped off the 19th century structures, painted white and then resold for an incredible amount of money. It was really painful to watch. I was also watching the city bouncing from one vision of rebirth to another. It was fascinating and scary, so I just decided to jump in, which brought me to UNO. I asked for an interview with Dr. Marla Nelson, a wonderful professor who's still leading the program, and she convinced me to apply. Okay, so at UNO, you got 
your Master of Urban and Regional Planning, which is uh, what you currently hold, obviously, since you got it. Can you tell us a little bit about the program, like uh, like an overview of it? Because I, I'm really always interested in, in hearing the differences between these master's degree programs, because so many of my previous guests have the same degree that I do, the MPS from Tulane. And I kind of like to see what everyone else was doing while I was kind of doing that. So can you tell us a little bit about like maybe the kind of classes you took or how it was set up or just anything interesting you thought about it? Absolutely. So UNO's um, Masters of Urban and Regional Planning program, it's called a MERP for short, which is pretty fun. Um, it's an accredited planning program that takes a multidisciplinary approach to the planning field, offers a multitude of specializations. You can specialize in transportation or environmental and hazard mitigation. There's also urban design and land use, uh, historic preservation, and housing and economic community development. Those last two, historic preservation and community development, are what I focused on, but I was able to take courses in all of them, so I got a really well-rounded education and foundation in the planning world. It is designed as a two-year program, but it is also designed as a program for working professionals, so that most of the courses are held in the late afternoon, weekends, and early evenings. So we, we really had a diverse group of people that were taking these courses. It draws students from around the country, and in fact, I was one of the few native Louisianians that was in the program when I was there. So I think that offering a well-balanced approach to all planning fields really provided a good foundation for preservation as it works in um, a city like New Orleans, which is a historic city that you know has to deal with a, a multitude of approaches of how to get the best out of the city. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the general sort of architecture base, like what I did, doesn't cover the regional, the planning and the urban development, which is, is so integral to, because preservation happens within those spaces. So yeah, that, I, that sounds like a good program, I guess. <laughs> I have to look more into it. I don't know that much about it, but it sounds really interesting, so... From there, I would like to talk about your work, but I want to start with the Preservation Resource Center because you kind of like bounced back and forth like you did that and then you were here and then you were there and then you were here. So I kind of want to like lump that together first and then we'll move on to the work that you did at the VC Pora. So you were an intern at the PRC, the Preservation Resource Center, as a student in the advocacy department, and then later became the advocacy the advocacy coordinator. Can you please talk about what you did there first as an intern and then later as the coordinator? Sure. Well, when I began as an intern, I was just in the beginnings of my preservation coursework at UNO, and the the wonderful Professor Jane Brooks got me an internship with the Preservation Resource Center, and I was delighted. I began and I was assisting their then advocacy director, Michelle Kimball, with demolition monitoring. It took me into neighborhoods across the city and it really exposed me to the myriad of threats that historic structures face. There's willful neglect, abandonment in a lot of cases. There were a lot of properties that were caught up in title and air issues. There was pressing development and sometimes there was just a desire for a parking lot. And also it taught me when demolition is appropriate and when it can be avoided. 
It showed me the process the city uses to make the determinations and how we can be voices for the structures that deserve a second life. But for the majority of my time as an intern with PRC, I was really learning all about demolition. Mm -hmm. Okay. How did you develop your passion for advocacy and public policy? Was it something that grew out of that internship? Was it something that came about when you were doing your studies at school? Because it it seems like that's kind of what you do a lot of now. Like, how did that, where did that come from? It it was both. I, I think it was exposure to a lot of concepts in school and then getting a little bit of real world application as an internship. And also later on, as I became the assistant director here at BC Pora, but when I was in school, or actually when I began, I had no idea that I was going to be as interested in public and land use policy as I was, but learning how all of the different facets of urban life work together in historic cities and how everything is related really just opened my eyes. And working with people and other neighborhoods in their their initiatives and what they want for their communities really kind of honed that love. So people people love the city's historic neighborhoods because you can practically practically walk anywhere. You can find a great restaurant or a corner grocery store deli. Then you can walk and catch some entertainment onto your next destination or whether it's work or school or something else. In planning school, they, they like to refer to building cities like this now as new urbanism. But as Jane Brooks, the preservation guru of UNO, she said, New Orleans doesn't need new urbanism because it has true urbanism. It is a product of 300 years of dense, walkable neighborhood fabric. So working with communities that were defending their neighborhoods, particularly in post-Katrina, I just love the fierce commitment and pride that people have for their community and their willingness to really fight for it. Advocacy work is always a little bit scrappy, but uh, you are either working to make change or to keep something that you value. Observing from the outside is always kind of like putting a a puzzle pieces together. It's you're balancing individual needs with those of a community, and it's always a tough sell, but there's a lot of room for a creative thought and how you approach it from a planner's perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the demolition. You, you you did that a lot in in the advocacy position. So as the coordinator with the PRC, you organize the initiatives that go along with de- demolition prevention and blight remediation and all things that are big issues still in New Orleans were bigger issues then. I think after Katrina, I, th- I think it's calmed down maybe just a little bit since then. But what all is involved in that type of work? Did you go to city council meetings? Did you speak up at council meetings? Like, what are the types of things that you had to do in those in that capacity? <laughs> um, well, when I when I returned to the PRC in an official capacity, it, it seemed like I lived at City Hall, and honestly, I, I still kind of do. Um, I was still monitoring and advocating to save as many houses as I could, but I was finding other solutions for blight remediation, working both with neighborhood organizations and the various city agencies, including code enforcement, safety, and permits. Um, And I was also connecting buyers and sellers and working to relocate properties and even directing our building program to properties that were available for rehabilitation, sometimes mounting an opposition for an unnecessary demolition meant going into the neighborhoods that the 
that might surround that building, say it was an old school, and talking to neighbors and community members about what they felt the future of that site was and getting them mobilized and getting their voices to City Hall. So, yes, I was going to city council meetings. I was also going to the Neighborhood Conservation District Advisory Committee meetings. I was going to the HDLC meetings. Um, and dozens of other little acronym meetings. I spent a lot of time at City Hall, and I, and I still do, and it's really important to have your voice there with your policymakers and to keep your voice there, to remind them that you're, you're always paying attention and you're there to support their actions. Mm-hmm. A, another thing that I spent a lot of my time doing at the PRC was, aside from monitoring demolitions, was monitoring other land use changes, proposed development or zoning waivers, things like that, that would have significant impacts on an actual community. And so I was talking to residents around the city about what they wanted in their neighborhoods. That developed a lot of relationships with neighborhood leaders around the city that I still rely on today. Uh, Lastly, a lot of my work was on historic tax credit advocacy, which is by far the single most effective tool in the preservationist toolbox to maintain historic structures, and one that New Orleans is a leader in the nation in utilizing. Just to drop a few facts, because I love (laughs) the historic tax credit, in the last 15 years, the federal historic tax credit has directed more than $2.5 billion in private investment and created more than 38,000 jobs in Louisiana alone. And across the country, the federal historic tax credit has encouraged more than $131 billion, billion with a B, in private investment, which has resulted in the rehab of more than 42,000 buildings. Wow. Yeah, we had a previous episode where we talked, well, I've covered it a little bit in several episodes, the the tax credits and and kind of how they work and the process of of using them to, to update and modernize and make buildings available for the public in in different ways and it I think it is it is a really great program um like on the on the flip side though on the same time it's like sometimes I wish money wasn't the only driving factor for that kind of stuff to to be done but if that's what it takes to bring these buildings back to life then you know it's it's always good because it's always good to have them come back instead of just sitting and you know falling apart so. well the the state legislature is going to be reviewing the state historic tax credit during this legislative session and i think the opportunity remains to strengthen it i think that particularly with regard to some of the secretary of standards uh secretary of interior standards they can be updated i think the programs can be used are incentivized for rural development and affordable housing development. And Mm -hmm. I think the programs can really be updated to work for communities in a better way, but hands down, we wouldn't have these structures without it. So, right. Yeah. I I hope to see some of the, um, affordable housing initiative. I think that would be really nice. Like, uh, I mean, some of these buildings are beautiful, but we just don't need more four thousand dollar a month condos absolutely like that's, not it's not really i'd like to see the schools come back <laughs> right rather than than four thousand square foot condos yeah yeah absolutely okay so let's move forward and talk about your work here at the vc pora so you worked as the assistant director and now of course as the executive director can you tell us exactly what vc pora is and what it is that they do because i kind of feel like they're a little unique in their processes, I guess. 
uh, you know, um, can you just talk about that a little bit? Certainly. The organizations are, are definitely a little bit different um, in their scope and their mission with, you know, historic preservation being at the core of it. But I read that rather long mission statement earlier, which is a wonderful mission statement, but I was going to give you a little bit of a cleaner version now. What VC Pora does is we work to maintain the French Quarter as a living, breathing neighborhood, in addition to being a major economic driver of the city and the state. The Vieux Carré, or French Quarter, is, is a national historic landmark, which is designated by the Secretary of Interior, and it's a nationally significant historic place, possessing exceptional value or quality in illustrating or interpreting the heritage of the United States. People are familiar with the National Register of Historic Places, of which there are about 90,000 sites listed. There's only about 2,500 of those sites that are recognized as a National Historic Landmark. So this is a very unique place. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also needs protection because competing interests between residents, businesses, and visitors, coupled with a balanced need for preservation and redevelopment, can create a lot of tension and fuel some battles. First and foremost, we are an advocacy organization, but we also function as a neighborhood association. As I said, we have a we have a long history, 80 years just just last year, and basically we began kind of in as we weren't incorporated yet, but we began as a group of residents in 1936, residents and preservationists that got together to prevent the demolition of the Upper Pontalba building to make that would make way for a new parking lot, and these same residents got together and supported the creation of the View Carré Commission, which is the regulatory commission in place today by way of a state constitutional amendment. And then a year later in 38, VC Pora actually incorporated. And over the decades, uh, VC Pora really has consisted of a group of scrappy preservationists and uh, residents that really want to see the best for this neighborhood. They want to make sure that residents can stay living here and we can maintain these fragile, historical, and irreplaceable buildings. In 1946, um, the city council actually removed 18 blocks of the the French Quarter along Rampart Street, which accounted for a large number of vacant lots that we still have today. Mm -hmm. And about 20 years later, V.C. Pora went back to the legislature and was able to have these blocks reinstated. And now we're starting to see redevelopment and there's protection along this strip. Also, everybody likes to talk about the Riverfront Expressway. That mm-hmm. was a group of preservationists led by VC Pora that were able to divert that. Unfortunately, it was diverted or relocated to the nearby Claiborne Expressway, and we all know we all know that what happened with that being erected. But if it had been built where it was planned, it would be an expressway right where the Moonwalk and the Waldenburg Park are now. Mm-hmm. In 1970, VC Pora worked to put a hotel moratorium in place in the French Quarter at, to maintain the residential character of the neighborhood and to prevent the demolition of buildings to make way for large hotel buildings. And in the 80s, they worked to prevent large tour buses at first and then delivery trucks from entering the French Quarter because these oversized vehicles physically rip off portions of Mm -hmm. our historic buildings. They run into them, they rip off balconies, they hit galleries and stoops. Um, In the early 2000s, they were able to pass regulations on a growing walking tour industry where groups of 50 to 100 with bullhorns would travel around the neighborhood in at all hours yeah. and that's uh, a big group of people that's definitely competing with a quality of life 
you know, it hasn't all been successes. It, it's been some defeats. But uh, we think that over the decades, we have very much contributed to uh, achieving a quality of life and a balance, a balance of needs here in this, in this incredible neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I do want to go back and and touch on just in case our listeners aren't familiar with the Riverfront Expressway and then what happened with the Claiborne overpass. I mean, I just wanted to to, I guess, sort of touch on it just real quick. So people know the story, you know, they were planning to build the expressway, like you said, across along the riverfront, which now we have a very nice walkway and park. And it it ended up being erected over the Claiborne Avenue area, which at the time was a, a was a very thriving neighborhood. And unfortunately, you know, because of the that construction, that neighborhood suffered and probably still continues to suffer to this day. And I'll put some links in the show notes about that if people want to learn more information. But I just wanted to touch on it real quick, just in case people didn't know you know, what the story is, because it's sort of a a well-known story here, but other people may not know, you know, what the history is, so. Absolutely. This is, this is one of those, is it a victory or is it not? On the one hand, we, we, as in VC Pora, was able to divert this development project that would have obliterated all views and public access to our riverfront and our riverfront is why we're here this is the connection to the city but on the other hand it shows a pattern of how marginalized communities with voices that don't have as much resource behind them can be overheard and unfortunately, that expressway was relocated in the Treme neighborhood, and it literally dr- drove a wedge through the most prominent African American community in the United States. And it is still recovering from those from those injuries. Mm-hmm. There is there is a lot of current work and planning speculation, uh, also community driven work on what to do now that that expressway has reached the end of its lifespan it is it is no longer going to be as useful as it has been in the past and there has been a lot of discussion on removing it and bringing Mm -hmm. it back to street level or also keeping it elevated and converting portions of it into an elevated park kind of like the high line temporarily it it will remain Mm -hmm. and they're exploring options for the utilization of the space underneath in a couple of different developmental, developmentally interesting ways. So that uh, that is a, a story that has yet to be finished, but it is the an unfortunate counterpoint to the success of preserving this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I think it it is a, a story worth touching on, even just a little bit. And um, you know, I'll, I'll put some articles and stuff in case people want to do their own research and you know that kind of stuff but it it is probably the that part of the city's history is probably a really big I think turning point maybe and just the way the rest of the the whole place developed as it went so let's go over some of the unique issues that the VC Pora deals with um, because like you said it is a neighborhood association so things like short-term rentals tourism management of things that maybe other organizations don't have to deal with or or things that are very specific to the French Quarter itself I think on the whole 
all of the nonprofit groups here in New Orleans are moving towards a better future for their part of New Orleans. And many, many of us are working on very similar issues. Remember, everything is interconnected. Housing, preservation, transportation, economic development, all slices of the urban pie. And these are these are missions that many organizations are focusing on. But the issues that VC Pora deals with are mostly specific to the fact that the French Quarter is under a tremendous amount of pressure every day. Political, economic, and developmental pressure that is coupled with even more risks than many other neighborhoods face. We have really high property values that also and buildings that also require very expensive maintenance. Affordability and accessibility has been an issue for decades, as has crumbling infrastructure and deferred maintenance. Add to that a fragile building stock and a developmental desire to pretty much extract every cent out of it. Mm-hmm. We struggle with how to balance the needs of the residents, the business owners, artists, and musicians. These are, the, these are those who are putting in the work to keeping this neighborhood a vibrant community. We're struggling with keeping their needs along with what seems to be a tendency to just want to attract more and more tourism dollars. So you mentioned tourism management and you mentioned short-term rentals. It's all kind of the same. It's all about tourism management. Right now, short-term rentals is is a big issue, is something that VC Pora has been fighting head first for probably since about 2011 and 2012 when the platforms such as Airbnb and VRBO sprung up here in New Orleans and they started to take hold. Really, the the fo- the majority of those listings began in the French Quarter and they mm-hmm. started to move out. VC Pora, along with other neighborhood groups, started voicing objections to the issues that having unproliferated, I'm sorry, proliferated, um, proliferating hotel rooms in our residential neighborhoods, the impact that's going to have on a quality of life, on a sense of community, on a sense of security. As they started moving out into other neighborhoods, it became apparent that the issues were becoming more and more about neighborhood cohesion, affordability, and access to housing. So if French Quarter was ground zero for short-term rentals, it really has just ballooned out and touched every neighborhood in the city to where mm-hmm. it reached a tipping point in 2015. And the, the citizens of New Orleans demanded that the city council and the mayor's office do something about it. Mm-hmm. So in 2016, when the first short-term rental ordinance went into effect, the advocates for VC Pora and the French Quarter at that time were successful in maintaining a 50-year-old prohibition of hotel accommodations in the French Quarter. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot that the French Quarter just got a ban on the first set of ordinances, but in reality, in 1969, as I spoke before, um, there had been a ban put in place because the city decided that hotel accommodations were taking over or very much encroaching into the residential portions of, of the neighborhood, and they decided to go ahead and put a prohibition. And that's been almost 50 years to the year. So, and also, not simply because there was an existing prohibition on hotel accommodations, there is an absolute risk that and it, an absolute increased risk in the French Quarter for life safety and economic viability. Mm-hmm. To understand that this neighborhood functions as a neighborhood, but also as an economic driver to 
put unlicensed and unmonitored hotels in such a dense neighborhood of buildings that have not been updated for life safety codes because they can't be Mm -hmm. they're they're wooden they have party walls they're so close together the risk of fire and fire spreading over entire blocks it's just way too much too much risk too much to lose Mm -hmm. and so that and for other reasons in that the french quarter has been facing population decline for decades the city council and the mayor's office decided that they would uphold the prohibition and the French Quarter. Now, with that first set of uh, regulations, that was the, the good side from our perspective, but there was a lot that really needed to be done because what it did was it opened up every other neighborhood mm-hmm. for completely unfettered hotel proliferation. There were no restrictions on density or caps per block face. There was no requirement such as a homestead exemption that would require that an owner was an occupant. And so we found ourselves a situation in a situation where investors, both in state, in town, and out of state, could go into neighborhoods, consider the desirable historic neighborhoods where people wanted to visit, and they could buy up entire blocks. And though some the perspective may be that the the french quarter got its prohibition but vc pora has maintained vigilance since 2016 when those when those ordinances passed to educate the public and share information and share our stories into how to effectively advocate for your community with regards to short-term rentals Mm -hmm. so we never stopped advocating Mm -hmm. In 2018, during our city council and mayoral elections, voters showed that they were frustrated with the current set of regulations, Mm -hmm. and they showed that frustration at the polls. Nearly everyone that is in office today is there because they took a strong position that was in favor of reining in the existing short-term rental regulations. So as soon as they got into office, a new study was called for. That was a 2018 study. We actually are on our 2019 study, which was just released earlier this week. And in a a quick review of that study, the City Planning Commission has once again recommended that the prohibition in the French Quarter be lifted. And so we know that this is something that we're going to have to advocate against. But that's the bad news. The good news is, and this is something that citizens across the city have been rallying about, is for, for now the requirement of a homestead exemption, which means you are occupying the home that you rent, will be in place for all residentially zoned districts. Mm-hmm. And this is this could potentially be an absolute game changer for the neighborhoods that have suffered so much in the years since the short-term rental industry has been basically regulated and made legal. Mm-hmm. So we know the fight isn't done. We're going to continue advocating for maintaining our ban, and we're also going to advocate for our neighboring communities to get the restrictions in place that allows them to still be thriving communities. Mm-hmm. Additionally, short-term rentals are one of the the most prescient issues right now, but additionally, we are looking to our riverfront with some proposed redevelopment last year in a land swap between the city and the port 
um, the city acquired the Governor Nichols and Esplanade Street wharves, which are right there at the base of Esplanade Avenue. Mm-hmm. Right after the acquisition or the land swap, they placed the Audubon Commission in charge of its redevelopment. And though no plans had been revealed for the 14.5 acres, it's a very large amount of land, mm-hmm. aside that it was going to become a $15 million park, um, we were very shocked to read in Time magazine from a city planning commissioner that the wharves would be converted into a music and performance venue to draw visitors from nearby Frenchmen and in the French Quarter. Hmm. The word amphitheater was being used. Yeah, that the doesn't amphitheater. That sounds yeah the. I mean, my first thought is that sounds horrible. I mean, obviously, I haven't read the article that you're referencing, so I but. That sounds horrible. Yeah. Well, the fact that that kind of development proposal was being considered without public input, and it really put the residents of the French Quarter and the Marigny on high alert. Mm -hmm. These wharves at the foot of Esplanade will actually connect the Crescent Park and Waldenburg Park, but the actual access to those creates a bottleneck for pedestrians and traffic right there because it's a it's a T intersection. Yeah. And essentially it's it's one way going into a one way. It's a it's a complicated intersection and a lot of care needs to be put into putting an attraction that would attract thousands of visitors at one time in right. terms of egress and safety and what the impact that would have on its surrounding historic neighborhoods. We think that connecting the riverfront is an absolutely incredible idea. It's something that the city should have been focusing on for a long time. Um, but we think that it can be done in a way that introduces passive recreation, green spaces, biking infrastructure that is des- desperately needed in the city, mm-hmm. rather than just creating another ad- attraction to the, if you build it, they will come mentality. Yeah. This, this passive redevelopment is completely in line with our city's master plan of making the riverfront more accessible to the public. And many cities are demonstrating great examples of opening up their riverfronts in such a way. Mm-hmm. Audubon has maintained now that they are still in the pre-development phase. And since then, since the blow up of the, it's going to be an amphitheater, mm-hmm. they have, they have ha- held three public meetings to gather residential input. And uh, very recently, as of last month, they decided to postpone the redevelopment for another 12 to 20 months. So okay. we'll be paying attention and we'll be letting our, our members and public know, but we are going to be advocating for a passive green space for recreational passive recreational use for locals and visitors alike Mm -hmm. rather than something that is a a high commercially impactful use yeah and there's really nowhere I mean any anybody that's ever been to a a Saints game or anything at the Dome or the Smoothie King Arena or just where you live in a giant arena like that knows the parking and the traffic and how horrible that can be and I really just can't imagine how that would even function in in that location like I, I can't even where would all those people park like how I mean yeah that's kind of mind-boggling <laughs> well also barges have been hitting those wharves more frequently mm-hmm. in the recent um couple of years and so having thousands of people on uh, an access point or you know in a park space or in an arena that only had one major route of egress, uh, the potential for disaster is huge. So we just think a lot of care needs to be 
going into the best use of that space for all of the residents. Mm-hmm. Well, the Crescent Park, uh, you know, on the other side is lovely. And it's, you know, it's very nice. And I see that people are down there all the time. It's always being used. And so I think connecting the two, if, if that can happen, would be the best course, like what you guys are advocating for, definitely. Just if we could have that a bike all path, together, yeah. A bike path from Poland Avenue going uptown as far as where the port is actually functioning, what that would do for for cycling safety, for transit options, it, it would it would be amazing. It really would connect the city. Mm-hmm. I would like that option too, just because I'm tired of riding this streetcar. <laughs> I mean, we'd still have to drive down from like where we live to to that point, but that yeah, that would be amazing, especially for the cyclists in the city, which you know we we just had that horrible horrible accident. A, a few cyclists were hit unfortunately after a per- Mardi Gras parade, and you know anything that makes that safer is always a good option by me, and the fact that it could be connected to the Lafitte Greenway. And mm-hmm. so it could branch out our, our green infrastructure and transportation network around the city. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that would really pull together a lot of downriver and upriver and neighborhoods that are you know branching out into mid-city. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a cohesive citywide network. Mm-hmm. And Audubon has the opportunity to make sure that it is. Yeah, I love that idea. That sounds great. I'm really excited about it. I hope I can't wait to see how it goes. Of course, I'm I'm, I'm hoping I'm still here when that happens. <laughs> you know, you never know. <laughs> a, a program that we held last year, in partnership with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Vucre Commission Fi- Foundation, we held our biannual uh, Morrison lecture at, but featuring Mr. Cossus Christ, who is an international expert on sustainable tourism. He's traveled to more than a hundred. 30 countries, six continents, award-winning writer. He's an editor for the National Geographic Traveler and serves as their senior advisor for sustainable tourism. And he came to speak to our members and the public about what sustainable tourism and management plans really look like. And this is something that, though we might not have put that stamp on it in the past, has been something that VCPOR has always advocated for, balance. So he he spoke about what sustainability in tourism can mean, which is managing tourism and determining how much change a community can absorb before it reaches a tipping point, losing its authenticity authenticity and the uh, the very reason the tourists are are coming to visit. Um, We're seeing many international and American cities that are showing signs of buckling under their own success. Uh, Internationally, Barcelona and Venice stand out as as victims of their own success especially from cruise ship industry and mm-hmm. they're starting to adopt measures to uh, fix these mounting problems um, sustainable tourism also means acknowledging all the groups that maintain this economic driver that that are going that are committing um, their time and making sure that all benefit without compromising what people again are coming here to experience and we're talking about the hospitality and service industry service industry, uh, our culture creators, the residents that call it home, and the ones that maintain the architecture. And when in terms of maintaining the architecture, they're maintaining literally the stage where all of this is set. Mm-hmm. It is a tenable relationship, and it's a balancing act, so it requires constant work. Uh, Costas also spoke about calling for travelers to create a positive impact on local populations. 
Um, this is aspect of sustainable tourism advocates emphasis on the protection of cultural and nat natural heritage and social and economic well-being of the local people and environmentally friendly practices. So making sure, again, that all of those creators are really pulling in the benefits of all of these visitors mm -hmm. that are coming in. I think we just reached 17 million last year. Wow. And the numbers are growing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that perhaps his most apt analogy was that tourism is like a fire unmanaged it destroys everything in its path but managed it cooks our food offers us light and keeps us warm mm -hmm. so i think this is a really interesting thought and we want to be a part We're, we've been committed to this challenge for decades and we uh, are looking forward to working with all of these groups to address these issues in an equitable way moving forward Mm -hmm. That's definitely something I hear from a lot of people, not just in preservation here, but just the communities in general, that there is so many of the people that make New Orleans what it is, our service industry workers, our musicians, our artists, are being pushed out because the cost of living here is is very high. And, you know, I, I hear that that comes up all the time it's like a constant thing and it is something that you have to think about because you you want the city to be profitable and you want it to you know make money for the good of everybody that lives in it but at the same time those people shouldn't have to take a three-hour bus ride right. to to get to work because they can't afford to live anywhere near where they've worked even in the parish right for their for their you know and some of these people here a lot of these especially these restaurants and stuff in the french quarter the, these guys have worked in these restaurants for like 30 years they've been a, a a waiter or a maitre d and they can no longer afford to live they're part of the institution right and and they're having to move further out and further out and further out and and it's just you know it, it's 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 a fine line, I guess, you know, you have to find that like sweet spot. And I think, I think expanding the streetcars has helped. I, ho I hope, I mean, you know, I don't live down here, so it's kind of, uh, you know, you would hope that that would help. And then, you know, the bicycle infrastructure that you were talking about, but that is something that is sort of on everybody's mind. I think right now is making, bringing it back to where people can function here and make it that good, place for people to come visit and still retain its in integrity. I, I think that what you touched on, basically improvements in transit would go a long way. And I think that the RTA is realizing this and they have for a long time and they're focusing on getting the most bang for their bucks. So it might not necessarily be the addition of more streetcars. It might take the form of more eco-friendly buses, putting more buses on the streets, mm -hmm. but something that is going to be effective in moving people from jobs to homes and not necessarily focusing on moving um, a visitor from one neighborhood to the next, but right. really making sure that they're taking care of all of the inhabitants of the city. So. Yeah. Yeah, because visitors, y'all can have your Uber, you know, like people got to work at that restaurant. You, you can pay your search, your search charges. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, so I'd like to touch on, and you've talked about this a little bit, about some other organizations that, that the VC Pora works with. So how closely do you work? I mean, I imagine you work with the VCC all the time because they're kind of the other body that sort of exists in this space but like what else do you do with the PRC and like you mentioned the 
the HDLC. Yeah, I'm trying to, there's so many acronyms. It's like too many letters. The Historic District Landmark Commission, that's what we have here. Um, can you talk about like how you work with those other organizations? Sure, sure. Um, that's interesting is that I'm going to have to go through different layers of groups that we work with. You mentioned the VCC, which is the View Correct Commission. It is the regulatory commission in charge of maintaining the architecture here in the French Quarter. And yes, we work with them very regularly. We attend meetings nearly every week and we maintain communication with their director and their employees daily because we are also the recipients of a lot of, you know, concerns. Um, you know, if some, if potentially if somebody is doing work that is unpermitted, again, we have to be very careful with these very old structures mm -hmm. that all, all work is permitted and is being, um, done in, in the way that it was specified. And so we, you know, we don't want to say that we're tattletales, but we have to make sure that we can keep those lines of communication open. And we also, you know, offer our, our advocacy and our views on proposed redevelopment here in the French Quarter. So most of the time we, we want to support the Vucure Commission in all of their endeavors. Um, but also the other regulatory organization is the, sorry for the acronym, it's CBDHDLC, which is the Central Business District Historic District Landmarks Commission. And they are in charge of regulating that first block of the Vucre from Canal Street into the quarter. Okay. And so they catch some of our buildings as well, potentially, particularly ones that would be taller. Mm -hmm. So because the, the height difference, the height limit is, is different in that first block. So we'll also work with, with that group. We work with the French Quarter Management District, which is largely in tasked with the French Quarter Task Force and the security aspects of okay. uh, managing the security aspects of the French Quarter. So we definitely work with them and they have various subcommittees, livability, quality of life. And so we make sure that we have open communication with those groups. As far as other civic like organizations, we, you know, our neighbors are Treme and Faubourg Marigny. So, I mean, these literally are our next door neighbors. And so we are constantly in communication with these two, two neighborhood association groups and, and those neighborhoods to just to make sure that we're, you know, we're all facing very, very similar issues, kind of an overcrowding and influx of tourism, how to, how to best manage it, you know, displacement of original residents. And so we, we constantly work with them. I think, and, and you asked about the PRC. Well, the, the, again, PRC and VCPORA are doing very similar things, except for the PRC's uh, geographic scope is just a little bit wider. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny when I was working for the PRC and I decided to take this job, somebody said, oh, your, your job's going to be so much easier because you get to focus on one neighborhood instead <laughs> of every neighborhood in the city. And I laughed <laughs> and I still laugh because a lot is going on in the French Quarter. Yeah. But um, where we might be focused more on individual land use or individual parcel information and advocacy, what the PRC is doing is they really are looking at that big picture and the interconnection of all of those those urban aspects and how preservation can play the most beneficial role with all of them and I think that's really important work and so I, I definitely stay in communication with them and I, I respect all of the work that they're doing and I think that we can support each other so we do work together. Okay so sort of piggybacking off of that do you ever consult with organizations 
other places besides here, like maybe other tourism based cities or communities or just to kind of see what what they're doing on their end to to deal with the particular issues that you face here? I have to a, a limited amount. Again, I, I've only been here for about two and a half months, but my predecessor, Meg Lusto, spent a lot of time building relationships with other uh, cities and particularly people that were advocating for tourism management and preservation. I have had the opportunity to consult with people from San Francisco, Charleston, and Pittsburgh, and also Houston on various issues. And this is just at national conferences and, you know, friendships that I've made along my professional path, I do plan on reaching out to all of those friends and making new ones and um, making those contacts because I think that New Orleans has a lot to learn and also a lot to offer to other to other cities that mm-hmm. are facing some of these similar issues. And I think it's really important that we spend a good amount of time building those relationships. Mm-hmm. I'm always curious to know just like if, if there's like a secret society of preservation executive directors that like gets on the phone and talks about things and shares like war stories. I'm I'm so new. I can't (laughs) wait to be invited to it. It's going to be so exciting. I just think, I just, I I don't know. I just kind of have this like idea in my head. I don't know. Anyway, let's talk about what you do, maintaining good relationships with and you've talked about this a little bit with some of your other answers, but you maintain good relationships with neighborhoods, businesses, preservation organizations. A part of what you did do here and what you did at VC Pora, obviously you had to know lots of people in lots of places. Do you have any like tips and tricks or best practices that you can share for maintaining and, and keeping up those good relationships with those organizations? Tips and tricks. Well, aside from making a million lists every day, I I really think that it's important to, this sounds so easy, it's not a tip, listen. Listen and be responsive and acknowledge as many viewpoints as you can take. Um, sometimes it's it's really easy to assume that you have the best solution based on um, your experience and education or how things have been done in the past, but gathering perspectives has seemed to be the best way that I can avoid a narrow-minded or limited path forward, particularly as I am so new to this position and certainly not a veteran in the field at all. I try to reach out and to touch base and stay in touch with and be as responsive as possible for anybody who's reaching out to the organization. I think that community advocacy takes a lot of finesse and people are largely driven by their own passions and sometimes these passions are at odds with one another and being responsive and being able to listen to to those passions and those perspectives really can help you guide towards the best advocacy path forward. And I think that trying to understand why that passion is there can ease what you may think is adversity in the beginning. And also a tip is you should go in knowing that you're not going to win every fight. Mm -hmm. You know, defeat is inevitable, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's going to um, guide you to fight another day. So I did want to 
since I didn't write this down, but I did want to touch on some of the things that the more fun things that you guys do around here. Like I know you do events and fundraisers. Can you talk a little bit about those types of things that you plan? Maybe, you know, the stuff that you do to bring the community together. Sure. Sure. The the only fun things we do are go to meetings at city hall. That's fun. (laughs) Um, no, no, we actually, we do a lot of programming here in the community and, different different events to get neighbors together. Um, we have an At Home in the View Carré series, which is a monthly series where we, we get a local member or property owner to open their home. It's always on a Friday. It is essentially a, an open house, a cocktail. We'll have a specialty cocktail. We'll bring some wine. But we'll open the house, and people get to come in and see what it's like to live in the French Quarter. And, and these, these, are, these are lovely houses, and a lot of them have you know secret courtyards, as many houses here in the, the Quarter do. So it's an opportunity to get inside what you may never get to see again. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, honestly, that's, this is the funnest part of my job is getting to explore these houses. And so it's also a really great way for our residents to meet their neighbors. Mm-hmm. The interesting part of VC Pora in that it is property owners, residents, and associates, that associates part basically means anybody who loves the quarter can be a member. You don't have to be a resident to live here. And so our membership is, it, it spans the um, it spans the globe, actually. We do have international members. And so we we are open for membership from at all levels. And we really use these at-homes as ways to get people that might be interested or curious about our organization in to see what it is we do, why are we're promoting what we're doing. Our next at home is actually on March 22nd. It is going to be at 933 Burgundy Street from 530 to 7, and I would encourage anybody who catches this to uh, come on by. Um, I would love to meet anybody. And let's see, other other uh, events we have. We have we began a tricentennial lecture series with Beauregard Kai's house last year, mm-hmm. and we did a series of about – 10 monthly lectures and they were fascinating and this is all about the history of the French Quarter and we had we had one of our one of our lecture topics last year was presented by Captain Doc Holly who was a steamboat captain for 40 years mm-hmm. and he talked all about what it was his experience living and growing on the riverfront on steamboat we also had uh, an LGBTQ history a lecture that we presented and a lecture about Cosmo Matassa, the original recording artist here right down the street. So the Borgard Kai's lecture series are a great way and they're free. So I would recommend checking in on our website to for those. For fundraising, we host a, a major gala a year. Last year, because it was the tricentennial and it was our 80th birthday, we held our annual gala at the Cabildo. It was phenomenal. It was just such a wonderful affair. But we have other smaller events throughout the year. We have a summer social, garden parties, and then our biannual uh, Morrison Lecture Series and a Schwartz Gage Award. So we try to make sure that we have enough enough programming and opportunities that for people, if they just wanted to meet each other Mm -hmm. or if they wanted to have a little bit of an educational component, um, sometimes in the summer months, which is, it's abysmally hot for anybody who's not familiar with new (laughs) Orleans in the summer. We like to do, um, 
a traveling happy hour series where we'll go to uh, a local bar and just meet up for nibbles and bites because nobody really wants to open up their home in the middle of the summer. We all want to go and sit in someone's air-conditioned building Mm -hmm. and be served a cocktail. So we'll do our summer series of, you know, neighborhood pub crawls, and those are fun too. Okay. So I think we'll move on to my favorite topic, and my favorite things to ask people. Okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, um, I, I always like to ask people what, what their favorite thing about preservation is. I guess my, my favorite thing about preservation is the fact that you can experience it every day. I'm so fortunate that I work in an office on, in the French Quarter, I'm on North Rampart, and I live in a restored 1840s creole cottage and the fruits of the preservation labor are everywhere walking down the street it's just it's it's incredible it is absolutely all-encompassing and it surrounds us every day and what preservation means to me is more of a visual a visual representation of human artistry and perseverance and the stories that went behind the creation and the lives of those who lived in these amazing structures. It's just such a dazzling array of individuality and imagination. It's beautiful, yes, but it has a lot of meaning, and that just reinforces why places matter so much to people and to communities. So it's it's a hard answer, but you enjoy preservation because it's all around you. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a very unique response to that question. I always like, that's why it's my favorite thing to ask because I like hearing everyone's different perspectives because it it's, kind it's of a hokey. little different for everybody. <laughs> yeah, but that, I mean, but that's what it is. Everybody comes into it with a different type of, of love and sees it from a different perspective and that's what makes it interesting, I think. So, so on the flip side of that, what is your least favorite thing? And you can be completely democrat uh, democratic with this answer, like you know. Um, I guess <laughs> my least favorite thing is walking into city hall and hearing a crowd of people groan <laughs> at me. No, that's that's not true. That typically only happens from the bad guys. They like to groan, but no. Least favorite things are are losing that demolition battle or that preservation battle. Even though, especially if you put a lot of effort and a lot of heart into it, and uh, actually watching a building that you've advocated for being torn down is pretty soul crushing, Mm -hmm. especially if it was needless or in the name of progress along the lines of uh, parking lot expansion. This is, this is pretty bad because demolition is forever. And when you throw an entire structure in the landfill, you're throwing away that history, the stories of every, everybody that inhabited that building, the, you know, and all of the resources and energy that it went into putting into that building. You know, also my least favorite thing is kind of hearing this refrain that preservationists are anti-progressive or that preservation is only about maintaining a frozen moment in time. Everything has to look exactly the way it did when it was first built, not allowing buildings to, to grow and be modified for their current needs is not a perspective that I share. I think that cities grow and communities grow and people people's needs grow and have changed over time and I think that preservation really is about using the resources that you already have to meet the needs of today Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I had something good. I was going to reply to that, but I forgot what it was. Okay, we'll just move on to the next question. Do you have any preservation pet peeves? Or does that overlap a little bit? Oh, I guess your... that was a little pet peeve. Yes. I, I, I do not like being labeled an anti-progressive because I like to think that everything that that we are doing is progressive in mind. Okay, I have one small selfish <laughs> pet peeve and I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers here. It's fine. It's a personal thing. I don't like it when house renovations fully enclose a front porch okay. with a railing. Um, they remove the stairs that connect the front porch to the walkway, the sidewalk, the driveway, and they basically make a cage out of what is meant to be the bridge between the public and the private space. Mm-hmm. And I think that porches themselves and, you know, sitting on a porch, sitting on a stoop is, uh, and then being able to welcome someone into your home or have that conversation is so much about part of being a part of your community. And so creating that, that physical barrier of the porch cage is uh, just saying that you want to be an observer and not necessarily a participant. So mm-hmm. that's a very specific pet peeve, yeah. but I don't like it. <laughs> okay. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one before, but I understand where you're coming from, especially here. There is such like an outside sort of porch culture where people hang out on their stoop or, you know, they sit outside and, and read a book or drink coffee or whatever. And, or, or they take a really nice porch and like throw up some, some mosquito screen and like clothes, you know, just sort of weird. I've seen some weird stuff. Yeah. I think porches are probably some of the most valuable components of residential architecture in the city. Mm -hmm. We have a nice little porch upstairs on our house. I mean, we live on the second floor. So our landlords live downstairs and they have a little screened in porch. And then we have like the open air sort of top part of it. And I, I love sitting out there. It's like my favorite thing. Our house is kind of up in the trees. And so it kind of feels like a tree house and sitting out there is just so nice. And I don't know, I, I haven't, since I've been here, I haven't lived in a place that had a porch like that. So, well, I'm I'm not trying to be uh, only porch specific, but because I see the value in when I say porches, I guess as the most valuable, I think the entrance, the stoop, the gallery, those kind of elements that allow you to kind of be in a public slash private space. That bridge, I think, that is really the the important part of residential architecture. So, mm-hmm. of course, porches are lovely, but. We know that not every building in New Orleans has one. Right. So. Yeah. Okay. So I think finally, what advice do you have for someone looking to get into the preservation field? I would recommend that you build up tough skin, both literally and figuratively. You might be doing advocacy work, which you know might not mean that you're working with your hands on actual components, or you might actually be doing restoration work with your hands, but... I think that you should always expect the unexpected because you never know what's going to be behind that be behind that wall when you have to remove it. And I think that you need to understand that defeat sometimes happens. It will happen. But don't get so wrapped up in the constant push to fix something that you forget to to look up and look around and appreciate the work of preservationists before you and the work that you're doing, because it's very important. Mm -hmm. 
That's good. I like that advice. Everybody also gives very good advice <laughs> at the end. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to be it for today's episode. Thank you very much for being on the show, Erin. Thank you. This was great. I really appreciate you welcoming me. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guests' information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.